we're now moving out of the cations. And uh, the anions, which are positively charged, I mean negatively charged, I apologize, negatively charged, as opposed to the positively uh, charged cations, are actually held in the soil differently. Um, <clears throat> most, of the cat, most of the anions are highly leachable. Nitrogen, sulfur, and boron are all um, anions, and they're all highly leachable in the soil because they're not attracted by that charge. The way the anions are stored in the soil is in organic matter. Now, there are some, there are some ways that they're tied up in compounds, but by and large, their reservoirs are in organic matter. And so, again, your goal is to create the conditions where you can, you can have as much life, as much growth as you can with optimum levels of these materials in your soil so that you can, you can ultimately build them into that organic matter and humus as a storage reservoir in your soil. Because they are, if, if you were to do soil tests on an almost yearly basis, uh, sulfur levels dis go down, boron levels go down, you have, to re you have to apply them again because there's, there's no, there are some positive sites on the, on the colloids, the humus colloids and the clay colloids. But the, the, the anions are actually chelated or surrounded by organic compounds, and that's how they're held in, in the soil. They're not held on the surface. They're kind of held in the compound rather than on the surface of it. Um, so we're going to touch on nitrogen first. The roles of nitrogen. Nitrogen actually occurs in two forms, two uh, usable forms. In, in NH4+, it's actually a, a cation has a cation form, and it has an anion form, NO3, which is nitrate, and then NH4+, which is, which is ammonium nitrogen. Ammonium nitrogen, because it's a plus charge, can actually attach to the colloids in the soil. And so it holds in the soil better than nitrate. Nitrate is highly soluble and highly leachable. Um, one of the things, when, you, when people over-apply nitrogen in this form, it never leaves the soil by itself. It always takes something else with it, and what it typically takes with it is calcium. And so you lose calcium levels in the soil when it leaches out. Um, it's involved in vegetative growth. Nitrogen is the, is the largest amount of material in plant, in plant material. It's the largest content is, is nitrogen. And uh, its, its primary role is particularly vegetative growth. In other words, framing the plant. Building, building the, the plant, growing the, the stems and the leaves um, so that you have the, 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 the factory built that can pr produce the fruit. That's its, that's its uh, primary role. It's, protein and enzyme, it's in protein and enzyme formation. All proteins have nitrogen in them, and enzymes are just a form of protein. And uh, if those enzymes are not uh, built right, they don't function right. It's also involved in chlorophyll production. Again, so that affects photosynthesis um, and the growth of the plant. This is probably the most overused fertilizer there is. And the lakes and the streams and the groundwater and everything can t testify to that, that, um, that it is. Like I said, when it's converted, uh, when, it's, when it breaks down out of organic matter, it primarily comes out as ammonium nitrogen. Um, and then it's converted by the microbes, the bacteria in the soil, into the nitrate nitrogen. It's needed in both forms in the plant. 
Um, but like I said, it's highly leachable once it's in there. And it's, it's generally applied in a highly soluble form. The problem is that the plant needs it over time. It doesn't need it all in one big shot. And so your real objective here should be to um, get the natural nitrogen cycle functioning. There's tons and tons of nitrogen above every acre of soil. And if you have the natural systems functioning, all the nitrogen you should, would need should be easily accessible from, from out of the air. But the conditions are not such that that happens very well. Um, and one of the interesting things that happens with nitrogen, when you apply it to the soil, the bacteria get lazy. And the, the, the rhizobium bacteria and the free, there's, there's free living nitrogen fixers in the soil too. Zotobacters, um, blue-green algae, they all fix nitrogen. But when you provide the nitrogen to them, then they don't bother. In a, in a commercial, in a highly soluble, yeah, we're going to get, we're going to get when we get to the other, with the materials there, we're going to talk about the organic sources of it, which can be just as big a problem. Yeah, because, yeah. And why would that be? Why would that be? It's more suited to bomb making than <laughs> Well, you just brought up, why did farmers, farmers never used to use outside nitrogen sources, other than, you know, organic sources. But, how did that all come to be, since you brought that up? Well, yeah, when we came out of World War II, we had a huge bomb-making industry. And they didn't need bombs anymore. Not, at the extent, not to the extent, at least, that we did. And so what are they going to do with all this nitrogen manufacturing pro uh, ability? Well, they looked around and said, plants use nitrogen. Let's sell it to the farmers. And that's what they did. Use this nitrogen. And they started using the nitrogen. You know what happened next? What happens when, um, yeah, we're going to go over here. What happens when you apply too much nitrogen, you get soft growth. You get too rapid a vegetative growth. There's not enough complementary materials in there to finish building. It's like building a building when you don't have the full facade structure there. And it gets up and it's getting kind of wobbly because it's too soft. And so that's what happened. And, and so the crops, we were just talking about the wheat and what happened to all these tall wheat, old varieties of wheat. Uh, they grow wheat, those old varieties of wheat over in England and, and Germany. They produce 200, 250 bushels the acre of wheat with them. But what happened in here with them is they all fell over. The stems were too soft. They were all falling over. So the farmers said, well, this is great, but we're, our crop, we're losing our crops because we can't harvest them. They're all lodging and falling over. So what was the solution? Was the solution to go backwards? Say, okay, well, let's stop doing this because that's not working out really well because we're imbalancing it. No, they said they came back and they said, well, the reason is is because you don't have enough potassium. You're not getting enough stalk strength because you don't have enough potassium. So you need to put on more potassium. And so they started selling the potassium fertilizers to do that. And that looked great for a while until the animals stopped reproducing. And they say, well, this looks good, this looks great and everything, but the animals can't reproduce anymore. And they went back to the lab and, and uh, looked it over and everything. Instead of anybody thinking, let's go backwards here and let's start rethinking this whole thing, they came back to him and said, oh, it's because there's a, a phosphate deficiency. That's why, you're not, that's why you're not getting the reproduction anymore. 
you're creating one excess, one imbalance after another. And it's been that way for a long time, where you just come in and you create one more imbalance and exaggerate one more thing in order to compensate for the fact that you did the other. And so the next thing, you're selling them phosphate fertilizers. And from there, they still, they still continue to develop the problems. And so the, 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 the next solution was not, let's back up and let's look at, figure out what the, the right... Um, they knew at that point in time, by the way, what the right balance in the soil was. It was already known. Instead of backing up, the pharmaceutical industry came into it and said, well, we just need to give them drugs to help them to, to do this and to keep them from being in, sick with this and that and everything else from all the imbalances that were created. And you're on down to where we are today. Um, it was just creating an incomplete and imbalanced system. And just, it went from bad to worse. If they, would have, if they would have implemented a complete and balanced fertility situation uh, in the soil, we would have been in a totally, a totally different world right now, an entirely different world. You wouldn't have the sickness we have now. You wouldn't have a health care. We're paying, I like to remind people of this, because we think we pay a lot for food. We're paying twice what, or half what we paid for food 50 years ago, out of our budgets, half. You know how much more we're paying for health care? Depends on whose numbers you take, but it's five to ten times more for health care. I tell people you could easily pay twice as much as you do for your food and have more money in your pocket and a better quality of life if you would just restore an appropriate food production system. But we're, we want to spend our money on, we want to spend our money on um, sickness rather than... Okay, some of the, some of the um, deficiency symptoms of nitrogen, you'll have weak growth, weak stunted growth, you'll have small leaves, and, of course, when the, the leaves get smaller, you have less surface area to photosynthesize with, and so that drags down your energy level in the plant, and things just start going bad. Whenever you get anything uh, deficient or, or insufficient or imbalanced in there, it just starts leading to other problems. Um, the plant will become pale green. Nitrogen is mobile. I didn't put that on the other slide, but nitrogen is mobile, and so it can be moved in the plant, so you'll have a yellowing of the older leaves. But it generally starts from the inside out, where potassium starts from the outside in. So the yellowing will start from the in middle, will even come out as a V, and the potassium deficiency will start at the out, outer edges of the leaf and work its way in. So that's one way that you can tell the difference between the two. Um, magnesium, of course, is in the older leaves, but it tends to show up as a mottling yellow, not a solid, solid yellow. Um, excess nitrogen, you have soft, overly rapid growth that, uh, and weak stems, delayed maturity because the plant wants to keep growing vegetatively. It doesn't want to make the transition into reproductive um, growth. Delayed hardening off. It's more prone to disease and insect pressure because the cell walls are not properly formed. It's growing too quickly. It doesn't have all the resources to, to build, build the cell walls completely. And so you have more disease and insect pressure. One of the reasons you see those, you ever see aphids on the growing tip? Any of you guys have ever seen aphids right on the growing tip of a plant? They're right up on the top of it. Not, they're not necessarily down in it yet. They start up on the top. It's usually an indication you've got too much nitrogen in there and there's not enough other materials there to build it into the right form. And uh, that type of organism likes simple foods. They do well on white flour and sugar. So you've got, what are the inputs? There's nitrogen gas in the atmosphere over the, over the top. 
when you have a storm and you have lightning, it actually fixes nitrogen and when it falls with the rain, and so you get a few pounds of nitrogen. Um, you can look this up, the way, by the way, on the internet. You can get about 50 different versions of this. If you just look up uh, images of the nitrogen cycle, that's all that this one is. I didn't draw that. I'm not that good of an artist. Um, <clears throat> so you get some that way. You get biological fixation um, through different organisms. Leguminous plants, trees, uh, plant, other types of leguminous plants, symbiotic plants, fixing nitrogen into the soil. You get animals and, and other materials that die and are broken back down and releases the, the ammonium and then the nitrate in the soil. Um, of course, you have the farmer, looks like Johnny Appleseed down there in the corner, um, spreading his uh, commercial fertilizer, nitrogen source. Uh, and it's just showing you here how the, where the inputs are and the outputs are. But if you have the right conditions in the soil, that, that nitrogen gas in the atmosphere and the organisms in the soil and the leguminous plants you should be able to provide all the nitrogen you would ever need. And for, a, for an organic grower, most of your options for nitrogen are horrendous. They're mostly animal-based, or they're, they're compost-based, and that, unfortunately, is not, in most cases, very balanced. Um, and you tend to, if it's not properly composted, you'll have, you can have high levels of, of nitrogen in there, nitrates in there, that are going to release rapidly. Way faster than the way faster than the uh, plant can use them. Now it's it's slower source than than commercial. Well, not necessarily actually. If you use an ammonium source like an ammonium sulfate source of nitrogen fertilizer, um, it'll actually break down a lot slower uh, in a lot slower rate. Protein meals are an organic source of nitrogen that have to be broken down and are a good source of nitrogen because it breaks down over time. And so you're, you're having a steady release of nitrogen into the system over time. Um, I'm talking about, there's animal sources like feather meal, blood meal. Um, then you can, other plant sources are soybean meal, but the problem is the majority of the soybeans are GMO soybeans. And so that becomes a dilemma for you. There's cottonseed meal but a lot of the cotton is now GMO, so that becomes a dilemma for you. Uh, bone, meal is not bone meal has about 4% it's not nitrogen in it. Let me, let me move to the, the, uh, the slides here. Um, <laughs> but you know, a, lot of, a lot of even the plant protein meals now are, are becoming hazards, risks. And though they're a good source, um, and I think in some situations, if you needed the nitrogen and you had a good system, well, if you had a good system, you wouldn't need the nitrogen. But if you, you were on your way there, um, then, and you had the calcium levels, well, you have vigorous biological activity in the soil, which means your cations are balanced, first and foremost. You have adequate phosphate there and boron and everything like that. Your biology can be very aggressive at degrading those things. So if your biological activity is, is vigorous, then, then your risk at using these materials is diminished quite a bit. But anyway, I have up there, uh, again, this is not an extensive list. I try to just put the things up there that I think are, are um, what I would consider are useful sources, not necessarily ideal sources. But I have on top there ammonium sulfate. In most cases, 
this is a slow breakdown, uh, slow breakdown product that actually warms the soil. So it's a great so nitrogen source in the spring because as, as it breaks down, it warms the soil up. But it's a slow release, slow release material, and, and most soils need nitrogen and they need sulfur. Um, you'll see when we get to sulfur that sulfur is one of the most neglected elements in the growing system. It's one of the most critical, especially if you want to if you want to produce uh, humus. And these need to be tilled in rather than applied on the surface. Well, ammonium sulfate is not. If, if you were putting urea on, then it's. Um, it would be a bigger problem of volatility. But the meals, but the meals, there, yeah, you have a little bit of volatility there. But as long as you have an interface with the soil, it would be preferable to till them in. But as long as you have an interface with the soil that can stay moist, um, they'll come up and they'll break it down. So you have lots of different of those. You have lots of different compost and manures that have variable amounts of nitrogen in them. Again, the sources of the manures, a lot of the composts that are being made, you have to really be judicious in the compost that you're choosing because if they're, if they're out in California there's a lot of problem with this where it's not really composted manure it's aged manure and there's a difference composted means it was broken down aged just means it sat there for a while it didn't really do anything and with the amount of antibiotics and, and all kinds of other drugs that are being put into the animals it's killing off a lot of the biology that's intent would, would normally um, break that down and so there's, you're not getting a breakdown. In fact, they're having uh, all kinds of drugs, antibiotics, hormones, and everything showing up in the vegetative parts of, of organic crops. They're, in the, they're being taken up into the vegetative part of the crop. And so you're getting a lot of drugs whether you want them or not. Um, another one on there, uh, I didn't put on, I want to say it before I forget it, uh, is... Uh, is um, Monoammonium phosphate, there's monoammonium phosphate, it's a commercial source of nitrogen, there's diammonium phosphate. I don't recommend diammonium phosphate because of the high ammonia level in re relation to uh, um, phosphate content. It's a higher pH and, it, and it's, it's not demonstrated. If you need those materials, well, you're, you can do some damage with it, but then it'll become beneficial. But it hasn't demonstrated itself to be um, completely beneficial. Monoammonium phosphate has a much, uh, well, diammonium phosphate is what they call 18460. So 18% 18 nitrogen, 46% um, phosphate. Monoammonium phosphate is 11520. It's got a lower ammonium content to it and a higher phosphate con to it, content to it. And it's actually demonstrated itself to be beneficial to the, the soil biology. If those materials are needed and you apply it, it's actually been shown to be highly beneficial to the to the biological community in the soil. I forgot to put that one on there. Um, enzymatically digested fish products, usually two to three percent nitrogen. If they're higher than three percent nitrogen, then they've been concentrated, heavily processed, uh, because there's no more than two to three percent nitrogen actually in fish. So it can't be any higher than that in a, in a fish product, a fish emulsion or something like that. Um, those materials actually work really well, but they're expensive, and, and uh, you can't satisfy necessarily all the needs that your crop has with those products, but they do work really well. I've, I've worked with them quite a while, and as, as an enhancement to the system, they, they can have incredible benefits. The other thing you get with those is um, a lot of trace elements. 
you get a full package of, of uh, nutrients with, uh, with the digested fish products. Um, then there's symbio, and I put this on there because this is, this is what you ultimately want. The symbiotic and free-living nitrogen fixers. The rhizobium bacteria, the, the azotobacters, the blue-green algaes in the soil, when you get the conditions in the soil right, where these, these communities can proliferate, they will produce all the nitrogen you need. That in combination with growing green manure crops or leguminous crops where you can, you can increase the, the nitrogen levels in the soil. This is where you ultimately want to get to. Why would you want to spend money on something that can be done for you? And if the result is they will not fix more nitrogen that's needed in the soil. There's a demand put on them by their own communities, but also by the plants themselves as a, re a, re a request. And so you're not going to get an excessive um, building up of, of nitrogen in the soil. You, you brought up that it was a waste product, Well, this, uh, that it was killing biology. Well, it's a waste product for certain organisms. And so if you put heavy levels of soluble nitrogen in there, you're basically drowning them in their own waste and killing them. And then the ones that do need the nitrogen, well, you're, you're making them lazy, and they're just going to take the free stuff. And they're not, they're not going to work on fixing the nitrogen. But this is, this is where you ultimately want to get to, is the symbiotic and free-living nitrogen fixers. There are materials on the market you can inoculate those with. I always tell people if you... Uh, there's all kinds of materials out there that people say will help you with this and help you with that, and it'll, it'll solve all your problems, and, and if you just buy this product or you buy that product and everything, well, sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. And what it really comes down to is, um, what are the conditions in the soil? If you inoculate your soil with a, a product that's got these symbiotic and free-living nitrogen fixers in it, well, you, they might do a great job for you. But you, what you want is you don't want to have to inoculate them every single year. What you want, you want it to happen is you want it to become endemic in your soil. And a lot of people think when the ground gets cold that they're not fixing nitrogen. But that's been demonstrated to be wrong too. You can actually have, even when the temperature rises just above freezing, there, there are nitrogen fixers going to work fixing nitrogen. And so it's not just this limited time of the year as well, but, but it's, a much, it's a system that's in balance with the rest of the system. And it's not, we're going to try to guess at how much we need to put on at this one time, or we're just, we, we don't want to, one of the things I deal with with growers is, how many times do you, do you want to go across the field? Oh, I only want to go across the field once. I want to do everything I have to do going across the field one time. Okay, well, then you're going to have to put all this on, all that on, and um, it's too much. And, and you're going to wind up imbalancing a system in the short term and, and maybe eventually it'll straighten itself out. You'll wind up wasting a lot of it. But if you'll go across the field two or three times and you'll apply this in smaller quantities or if you can apply material that'll break down over time, then you can go across the field one time and, and not have to worry about it. But we can't afford to go. I don't have the time. We can't afford to go across that field more than one time. And a lot of people do that. and They just, they just pile it on. And they pile on enough that, like, uh, somebody brought up triple superphosphate in, in one of the sessions. Triple superphosphate has a pH of 3. What do you think nature's going to do with a, a material that's got a pH of 3? Well, yeah, it's going to try to... It's immediately going to try to stabilize it. And so it's going to take that pH and it's going to bring it to a balanced pH by combining that, that phosphate with something 
that will neutralize that high super acidic pH. And in the process, it ties up the phosphate. I tell people, if they have a farm and it was farmed and a ton of triple superphosphate was put on, I said, if you get it balanced out, you probably, it, all that triple superphosphate is all stored up in the soil there. I said, you, you just get the calcium levels right, and I bet that stuff will all start releasing, and you might not have to put phosphate on for five years because you've got a reservoir built up that all got tied up because they put it on, and, it, and they put enough of it on, they just pile it on to get enough on there to make sure it'll stay available long enough to get done what they need to get done, but it's way more than's needed, and it just gets tied up. And if you can break it out and release it, you got, you, somebody else just paid for all your fertilizer for you. Okay. Next we'll go to phosphorus. I put a P with a 3 minus next to it. It's a triple negative charge. That's a pretty potent charge. And because of that, phosphorus usually stays where it lands and, and, and ties up or associates with something to uh, stabilize it. So you don't lose phosphorus in the soil. And that's good news and that's bad news, um, depending on what your fertilizer practices are. Um, its roles, and we'll talk about that in a minute, its roles are reproductive growth. So nitrogen is more pushing vegetative growth, and phosphate is pushing reproductive growth, and so they kind of balance each other out so that, the, that you get appropriate vegetative growth and, 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 and you get the reproductive growth that's needed. It's part of the genetic material. It, it's involved in energy storage and transfer, early root growth. It aids blooming and fruiting, speeds crop maturity, and it's a mobile element too. Huh? Well, once it's in the plant, not in the soil. In the soil, it pretty much sits where you, you put it. That's why if you put it on the surface and the surface dries out, um, your biology is not going to be able to tap it for until the moisture comes back and they can get up there and use it. Um, well, I'll make my recommendation. I, I leave it up to you guys because I don't make any money telling you what, what to, where to do any of this stuff. I, I just try to help people understand that if you want information that is reliable, that you can make, good, make uh, good judgments and decisions on, there's only one lab left in the world. It's not that, that, that there are not other labs that know how to do it correctly. They just don't do it that way. For the reasons, whatever reasons, they don't do it. But it's, uh, it's, it's Perry Labs, but it has to go through Kinsey Ag Services. The one lab that actually still knows how to do it this way, actually two-thirds of their samples are run the way everybody else runs them. Because that's what the university wants, and that's what the fertilizer dealers want, because that's what everybody else is doing. And so even two-thirds of their business is, is doing soil analysis the way everybody else is doing it. But they're the only lab that's, still la that's left that will, will run the analysis the way it needs to be run in order to get, uh, well, it would have to go through Kinsey Ag Services in order to get that analysis done. They don't do that kind of analysis if you go directly to them. They do it the way everybody else does it. Huh? I got all their information. Okay. But you can look, it's Kinsey Ag, K-I-N-S-E-Y-A-G.com. You can look on their website. There are other labs out there that are close, but let me just, get, that are, are doing a fairly good job, and if somebody were able to, you know, work with that long enough, you'd have to sample between the two of them and continually just compare the one to the other and see if you could find what that number meant when this number went this. Because some, one, some of these labs, when calcium measures at 68, and don't ask me, 
how to explain how they can come up with it this way. Part of it's the way they do their analytics. When, when on the Albrecht system, calcium is at 68%, which is optimum, and one lab it's 80%. With their analytics, it's 80%. Another lab is 64%, and another lab is 70%. That's what correlates to 68% if it's run the way the Albrecht protocol is run. You see how much variability there is out there? And if you, if you think you're going to use the CEC, a lot of people think they use the Albrecht method, the Albrecht modeling, but they're using another lab. Can you imagine if you're using a lab and 68 is the equivalent of 80? And you think, well, I'm at 80. I need to bring it to 68. Well, you are already at an ideal level at 80. But if you think you need to bring it to 68 and you start trying to get calcium out of your soil, well, you're making it worse. So if you don't know what the numbers mean, then you can't, you can't uh, intelligently apply them. Not that somebody couldn't figure out what they mean. There are a couple of labs out there that do, a, I think, do a better job than others. But um, if, you want, if you want it to work the way it was discovered, the way it was understood, and the way it was fleshed out, you have to, you have to follow the methodology because then you know what the numbers mean in relation to all that. If you use a different mo methodology, the numbers all change. And if you don't know what the correlating numbers are, you can't, you can't come up with the same. And that's what happens to a lot of consultants. They try to use another lab, and they try, then they try to correlate it to the Albrecht model, and things don't go well. Actually, I have one client that I do about 150 farms for. And I'm doing the work for him. He came to me. I didn't, I didn't go out looking for it. He came to me because he messed them all up. Because he, he tried to apply one thing with another set of numbers, and he messed them all up, and he straightened it all out. And so um, we're in the process of doing that. And boy, I tell you, I, it, it's unbelievable what some people can do. Yes, you do need to know. Well, you need to know because the fertilizer dealer is not necessarily going to know. And let me give you an illustration of that. Remember I said diammonium phosphate was 1846.0? If you go into a fertilizer deal and you say, I want, it, I want 1846.0, and you don't tell them, I want diammonium phosphate, DAP. That's what I want, 1846.0. And you just tell them you want 1846.0, they're going to mix triple superphosphate, which is 0.46.0, with enough urea to give you 18% um, nitrogen. That's not the same thing as diammonium phosphate. It's a completely different material. But they go by numbers. And, and a lot of them, they care about their job about as much as they care about anything. And so they just want to get it done and go home, get their paycheck. And so if you're not on top of it, if you don't understand what your objectives are that, so that you can communicate to them, um, we've had issues, like I said, I was talking to somebody about, we've had issues with what kind of lime is available. When, when, a, when a supplier says, well, you, it, what do you care about because you're just adjusting the pH, that's their mindset. You say, no, I'm not just adjusting pH here. I'm applying nutrients, and so I need specific materials. But, you know, if you didn't know that and you go in and say, I need lime, they're just going to give you whatever they have. It's not going to be, did you have a, a question, Sean? Um, right, just keep a, keep a sample of it back. In other words, is what he's saying, too. Yeah, they don't, um, sometimes they don't hear you clearly. Sometimes 
they think that, like you said, magnesium sulfate and manganese sulfate, they think they're the same thing, and they're not. If you applied manganese sulfate in the levels you applied magnesium sulfate, you might start killing stuff. <laughs> so you, you do have to know. You need to be, understand what it is you're actually looking for um, because they'll try to substitute stuff and say, oh, this is the same thing, and it'll do the same. I run into this with trace elements where they want to they replace the oxides for the sulfates like iron oxide for iron sulfate. And iron oxide will be red or brown colored, black colored. Um, and even though it's cheaper and it's 50% iron, it's, you're, it's a waste of time to, to put it on the ground. You might show up 50 years from now. If your objective is to re restore the land now, it's, you need a sulfate form. Um, and even though it's cheaper, so don't get caught by the cheapness of it. You need to know this appropriate material, and I'm only putting up here materials I think are appropriate um, because there are other materials we could put on there. And we need to get a little bit further along here real quick because our time is about up for the evening and we're not quite where we need to be, but that's okay. We're not very far behind. We can get it caught up. Um, phosphorus deficiency, stunted growth, reddening or purpling of leaves, poor or no flowering or fruiting, Excesses, tie-up of other nutrients, um, and poor growth. Remember I said phosphorus stays put? You know, because of that triple charge, it stays put. The biggest people that get themselves into trouble, but it, into trouble with this, and it, but it's not exclusive to them, is the organic people. Because they use a lot of compost, they're putting a lot of phosphate and potassium on, and they're not really, they're, they're, the idea that you can't put too much on I mean, I know growers out in California putting 50 to 75 tons to the acre. Where do you see that in nature? Where do you see that kind of material being put onto a, a piece of ground in a natural system? But <clears throat> several of the large organic growers out in California, a lot of little ones all over the place, have overapplied this to the point where they've got too much phosphorus in their soil. And phosphorus starts tying up other nutrients. It can, it can interfere with potassium utilization. It can tie up copper, tie up zinc. It can interfere with sulfur um, when you start getting at excessive, excessive levels. Um, I, didn't, I didn't say that on nitrogen, but nitrogen is kind of dependent on the crop you're going to grow. You want to put on the amount of nitrogen that's going to be needed by the crop that you're growing, and some need more than others. Like if you're going to grow um, tomatoes, a vining tomato, you may, you may need 400, 450 pounds for the season that you're going to have with that. Whereas another crop, like peppers, you may only need 100 pounds of nitrogen. And so there's no standardized recommendation on nitrogen. It's more about what's needed. That's why a natural system is good, because it'll kind of provide what's needed, no matter what you're growing there. Um, phosphorus on, on the Albrecht system, you're shooting for 500 to 750 pounds on that, on that test, you're shooting for 500 to 750 pounds of available phosphorus. It is a, it is a Bray P2 that they use. A lot of people use the Bray P1, which is just a, wa a, a water-soluble. There's a lot of criticism of the, using the Bray P2, which is a, a water-soluble and a root acid-soluble. But Dr. Dr. Albrecht had been around this a dozen times, if not more, with people who criticized it then. That What they did was they mimicked what the root, the plant root, was able to do, not what the laboratory was able to do. But what the plant root was able to do, and the, the, the analytic was designed to, to measure that. Not, and so they say, oh, well, they can't, this test too strong of an acid, they can't extract that. Because the lab couldn't do it. 
they couldn't make up the combination of acids to extract the phosphate at that level, but the plant was doing it. And so they wanted to say, well, it can't be done, even though the plant was actually doing it. You're telling the plant, you can't do that, and it's doing it anyway? So the, the whole test procedure was designed to, to, to match what nature was actually doing, not what the lab was doing. Um, and so you're shooting for you know, 500 to 750 pounds. Once you start moving over, and you'll see in the anions, it's mostly in pounds, it's not in percentages, because it's not filling that bucket. We're talking about different elements now, and so you're not trying to fill a bucket, and so there's a certain amount of pounds that you want to have available, and it's, it's 500 to, to 750 pounds. Depending on the CEC, 500 can be more than enough. You know, on the lower CEC soils, you get into the higher CEC soils, then 750 pounds is what you want to shoot for. But if you go over that, um, then you start tying things up. And the problem with phosphorus is nobody knows how to get it out of the soil once you've overloaded it. Once you've built it to an, a, an excessive level, nobody has been able to figure out how to get it out. You can, you can try and tie it up some by brazing all your other anions and antagonists to the highest levels you can. I have been, ha have been reading some, some work that manganese at optimum levels can start controlling the phosphate when you get it in excessive levels like that. I had a, a fellow in Colorado that I met at the farmer's market and we were talking and he asked me about, he had these problems with uh, pill bugs and slugs eating his strawberries. And I said, you have too much phosphate. And he said, well, I can't have too much phosphate because I was following John Jevons' recommendations. I don't know if you know who John Jevons is. He wrote the book, How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible. It's, it's kind of the, uh, bi the French intensive biodynamic method. Well, John Jevons, I said, well, John Jevons has general recommendations. How do you know you need those? Did you do a soil analysis to see whether you actually needed them? He said, well, no, I figured he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> so, so I said, well, I think you have too much phosphate, but you know, you have to do a soil analysis to confirm that, but that's usually an indication when you get pill bugs and, and slugs and snails eating everything in sight, it's because you've got too much phosphate. Um, and so he did. He ran a soil analysis and came back and he said, you're right. My phosphate levels are too high. And he was fit to be tied. He was about to go get on the phone and, and call John Jevons and tell him what he thought. <laughs> there are no generalities is what I'm trying to point out here. There are only specifics. And there, you can't tell somebody some generalized approach and, and then they apply it because it may not meet their conditions. And it would be foolish, it would be like me, you should listen to my testimony. And maybe something you hear would match, would, would, would resonate with you and say, hey, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. And I, you know, I appreciate that and I want to apply that. But there's going to be other things that are meaningless to you because they don't apply. Um, but this is the biggest one that organic growers get themselves into trouble with. But there's a lot of commercial growers that do the same thing because they think they can just keep applying phosphate commercially every year. And uh, it's never going never gonna to become a problem. Um, the reason a lot of times it doesn't become a problem with them because they're for the, the way they're applying it is in such an acidic form, it's just getting locked up. Uh, but if it ever start releasing, someone would be in trouble. So you never want, this is one of those things you never want to over-apply. You want to know where you are because once you're over the top, then the only thing you can do is try to grow it out and I know growers that have been trying to grow it out for 15 years. And it's hardly moved. It's just hardly moved. <laughs> yeah.
Do you hear, the smaller, and Sean said, yeah, gardeners tend to apply way more, uh, when it comes to compost and stuff like that, they tend to apply way more material than a, than a, uh, a larger grower would. That's what Sean's saying is you could get yourself into trouble a lot faster with a small garden and, um, and being with big growers. That's what these growers are doing. And they've been doing it for 10, 15 years. The problem is that they built up such high levels there that it's going to take a while for it all to, to work its way out. And, um, but that's the only way that anybody knows at this point to, to bring it down. So you guys are just, you're naturally sitting on top of it. And so they have to be really careful about the materials that they use because they're already, they're already you know, over the top in some cases. What? Because they're, in, they're sitting on a, a rock phosphate ore body, a reactive phosphate ore body. And so it's naturally being expressed in that soil and made available. Um, not a whole lot you can do about that except you can dig the whole thing up and move it somewhere. But, so you just have to make decisions that will not exasperate, exasperate the problem and we'll, we'll optimize everything else so that you can, you can subdue the, the undue influence that, that uh, is being exerted by that material. So, um, okay, we got the 10 minutes. So let's look at some of the sources. Um, I put hard rock phosphate on here. It's about 24 to 30%. Oh, I forgot to put... Uh, P2O5 there, 24 to 30% P2O5, and up to 30% calcium. It's a long-term source, and a lot of people don't use rock phosphate because they say, oh, it's, it does, it's not available. Uh, it takes biology to break this down, folks. But you can put it on in this form. You can put it on in this form, and you can build reserves in the soil of calcium and phosphate. If you're in a situation where you don't have adequate levels of those materials. You can actually use this material, just like you can use a, you can use a coarser lime material and apply it um, and build a, a long-term source, a long-release source where you're going to have a steady supply uh, being made available to you over time. Um, then there's colloidal or re reactive phosphates, um, the, colloidal cl or the, the clay-based phosphates. Uh, reactive phosphate is the Tennessee brown phosphate uh, near Nashville, Tennessee. Well, I guess we're not going anywhere, are we? <laughs> um, MAP, or monoammonium phosphate, uh, is a source of, of nitrogen and phosphate, 11% nitrogen. This, this is a commercial material, but it's been demonstrated that it's highly beneficial. If these materials are needed, it's highly beneficial to the biology in the soil because it doesn't rapidly break down. The ammonium is captured on the colloids in the soil. And uh, so it's not wreaking havoc with high levels of, of ammonia, ammonia nitrogen. Um, and the phosphate, it's a, I can't remember the pH on this now, but the, the, the phosphate is in a form where it's, it's going to stay stable and available for a long period of time. Um, then there's bone meal. Bone meal is basically the same stuff as the rock phosphates. And so it has very similar numbers in it, although it has some nitrogen in it because it's full, not fully decomposed. And so you'll have similar numbers of, of phosphate and calcium and some nitrogen that comes with it. Um, I didn't mention this, but you see I'm using the word P205. I'm not using P. P is the elemental, uh, the, 
letter for, for phosphorus, but it's reported in, in fertilizer as P205. Again, you'd have to multiply it by 0.44 to get the actual phosphorus content. Uh, nobody seems to know why it was done that way, except that it made it look like you got a whole lot more than you did in, in the bag. Okay, um, and again, compost and animal manures, 0.53% P205. It's a matter of whether you can handle everything else coming with it and where your levels are now as to whether that's appropriate source. One thing to keep in mind with compost sometimes, there's a lot of composters now that are adding rock phosphate and limestones to the composting process. Um, and you need to know whether they're doing that or not. To, to, uh, you need to have an analysis of what they're doing to make sure what that content is, because in some cases there's going to be material in there beyond what you need and can cause a problem for you. Um, I don't have a whole lot of experience now with them. Um, it's like I said, there's, there's other materials out there, like there's um, monopotassium phosphate, which would be a good material if you, you needed phosphate, you needed potassium, but you didn't need calcium. But it's really expensive, and there's not really a, a good commercial source for, for volume that could be really affordable. There's a lot of other materials that, 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 that we could put on here. And I usually wait if somebody asks me, I say, hey, well, I can get this. What do you think about that? We'll usually discuss it at that point. Um, so it's not a comprehensive list on this. It's just the materials that I thought were appropriate materials to, to potentially use to supply your needs for, for phosphorus in the soil. Yeah, you know, actually, you're right. Yeah, that is rock phosphate. I'm sorry. I wasn't really paying attention to what you were saying. It's, it, it is rock phosphate. Yeah, it is rock phosphate. There is actually one source that I didn't put on there because it's not really a source anymore. It's, it's North Carolina black rock phosphate, which is a really good source of it. But the company that owns it in Black Mountain, North Carolina, they're not selling it that way anymore. They're processing it all into commercial fertilizer sources and, and other phosphorus uses. But it was, a, it was a really good source. had a lot of carbon in it, not just, uh, that's why it was black. It had a, kind of a black color to it. Okay, now we're to sulfur. Uh, and there's something I want to point out here. If you're growing vegetables, and particularly if you're growing any of the alliums, onions, garlic, leeks, or any of the brassicas, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, and any of the leafy brassicas, they require a lot of sulfur. That's what gives it, you know, the brassicas, that's what gives them that odor. You know, when you, when you, I juice broccoli and kale and stuff like that, you know, my wife always says you got to take the compost out because she doesn't like the smell of the, you know, the, the fiber from it. But they require a lot of sulfur. And one of the things I want to point out here, remember I said that, that phosphorus is, is represented as P2O5? They'll tell you that sulfur, and it doesn't leach. Phosphorus doesn't leach. Usually the contamination that we have is because it's, it's erosion. It's blown away or it's washed away into the rivers and stuff, and that's where the problem is coming from. It's not leaching into groundwater or anything like that because it's, it's too stable. Um, some volatility. Uh, mm -hmm. Before it binds up. With Before it binds up. Right. Yeah, you can get some, and it's overloaded. They put way too much on for what the crop needs. If you're, if you're growing any kind of vegetables, then you need to pay attention to this because a tremendous amount of sulfur is required in growing that. Now, I want to show you a conundrum here. They'll say that phosphorus is a major element 
and sulfur, phosphate is a major element, and sulfur is a secondary element. But you notice how one's measured as a compound and one's measured as an elemental? If you actually take sulfur and turn it into the compound sulfate, which is the form that it functions in, you need almost as much sulfur, and in some cases way more sulfur than you do phosphorus, to grow a crop. And sulfur leaches. It leaches out of the, it leaches out of the soil. And so it's made a secondary element, but it's really not. It's a primary element, and it's even more critical because it leaches out. It's not easily held in the soil. Um, it's, it's involved in the production of sulfur-containing proteins, which are critical for proper uh, construction of the plant and the seed and fruit, chlorophyll production, nodulation of legumes. If you're trying to grow legumes and you don't have adequate no sulfur, you're not going to get good nodulation and, and you're not going to get no good nitrogen fixation. And it's also involved in seed production, the producing of the seed on the crop. And like I said, if you're, you're growing uh, vegetables, particularly the alliums or the brassicas, they require more sulfur than they do phosphorus. You, want, you don't want to know the two materials that give the greatest sweetness. If you had to balance it, the two materials that give this greatest sweetness, the fruits, are sulfur and copper. Who would think the sulfur? But it's the proteins that are produced that allow the machinery that takes and produces the sugars and transfers them into the, into the fruit in a stable form that, um, that provides the sweetness. It's six, yeah, it's six months for it to re do whatever reacting it's going to do because it can affect the pH. That's why you have to wait that time frame because it, it'll affect the pH and that throws off the measurements for cation exchange capacity. And so that's why they, they want you to wait that long on it. So this is not a secondary element. It's a primary element. It's as important as phosphate is in the process if you want. It's also essential in, I didn't put it on there, but it's also essential in humus formation. If you, want to, if you want carbon induction going on in your soil, where you're actually fixing the carbon into your soil rather than overtly applying it, having to apply it, um, you've got to have adequate sulfur levels. And like I said, it leaches, and so you're going to have to um, apply it on a regular basis. And the more you keep it at optimum levels, the more it's going to get built into your organic matter and your humus, and the more of a reservoir you'll get there that can stabilize the whole thing so you're not having to... Um, continually apply so much to it. That's your goal is to get it built up in the humus and the organic matter in your soil so that you have a reservoir of supply there. Deficiency symptoms are similar to nitrogen deficiency. Um, the plant becomes pale green, um, usually top to bottom. Uh, and it, it's overall pale green color, color of the leaves on it. It's hard to distinguish sometimes from nitrogen deficiency, except the, the, yellow, the yellowing of the leaves on the bottom is more prominent in the nitrogen deficiency situation. Um, but it, they're both related to the fact that you cannot produce the proteins necessary to produce the, the energy, uh, the photosynthetic production system. You're not producing the proteins and enzymes necessary for that to fully function. So that's why this, the, the characteristics are different. Excess symptoms. If symptoms of other anion deficiencies due to suppression, there aren't any um, commonly understood um, situations with excess sulfur. It just ties up 
and suppresses other anions. So it interferes with phosphate utilization, it interferes with boron, it interferes with nitrogen. Um, it actually interferes with, uh, can interfere with some of the other uh, the cations too. But it's really just suppression of, of the other anions so that they can't fully function that excess sulfur does. But if you need it and your rest of everything else is in good condition, you can put hundreds of pounds of elemental sulfur. And elemental sulfur breaks down into sulfuric acid into the process of breaking down into sulfate. If you've got bicarbonates in your soil, it's a great way to get rid of them. Um, and the people who ask about that, well, isn't that sulfuric acid doing damage to the biology? It's, it's, my answer to them is, is it's wounding to heal. Do you understand what I mean by that? It, it actually does harm in the process of breaking, going through the sulfuric acid phase. But when it moves through that and gets on the other side, the biology comes back even more vigorously because of its need for that sulfur more vigorously than it was before. And so it's in a much better state after the process. Um, so if you need sulfur, it's not a reason not to put it on. Okay, here are the sources uh, for sulfur. Elemental sulfur, they call it ag sulfur. It looks like split peas if you've ever seen it. You never want to buy the powdered stuff. That's a nightmare to try to have to handle. But you, it usually comes, it looks like a split pea. It's kind of like a half a, half a pea on it. It's usually 90 to 92% elemental sulfur. This is the material that will break down into sulfuric acid by the microbes, by the way, that break it down um, in the process of going on to sulfate sulfur. And it's in the sulfate form that it actually leaches if it's not taken up and utilized by the microbes or the, or the plants in the soil. Um, ammonium sulfate again, which is a nitrogen source and a sulfur source. This is a great source if you need both of these. It's, been, it's one of those materials that's been demonstrated to be highly beneficial to the biology if these materials are needed. Um, gypsum, which we talked about with calcium, is a great source of sulfur if you have adequate calcium in the soil then this is a great source. Um, this is a really good material, by the way, gypsum, to put on in small quantities on an annual basis to maintain your levels of calcium and, and sulfur. Because it's a highly available source, but it's not so highly available that it's going to all run away on you before anything can be done with it. Sulpomag, again, Kmag, um, with the potassium, the magnesium, and the sulfur. It's a pretty significant source of sulfur. Magnesium sulfate. Um, is another good source of quantity. Potassium sulfate is also uh, got 18% sulfur. These are all materials you might put on in more significant quantities. Most of the trace metals, iron, manganese, zinc, and copper are all, all sulfate forms as well, but you're not as likely to be putting on as significant quantities of those. Sometime you do, and then you'd have to take it into consideration. But the sulfate forms of all of those, which we're going to talk about, um, are also good sources of sulfur. It's just that you don't put that much quantity on. So I think we're supposed to be done at five. Um, we were supposed to get one more thing done, but I think we can get it done fairly quickly tomorrow. Um, so it's already after five o'clock, so we'll just, this is the end of that. Does anybody, I'm happy to answer any questions if anybody has them about any, any of this, but I want to go ahead and end so that you know, if people want to get somewhere or another. They can. So let's just pray to end the day, and then we'll... Father in heaven, we're thankful for the blessings of the day. We're thankful for your presence. We're, we look forward to the additional blessings for the evening meeting, and we just pray that you would be with us through our supper and, and the blessing of that and the service that we can give by it. We just 
pray that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.